This is Andrew Hall. You're listening to Dead Hand Radio, a podcast about the Cold War, its history, and the effects it had on our culture, technology, and the future of our world. My guest for this episode of Dead Hand Radio is Joe Kent, Director of Education for the National Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas, Nevada. The National Atomic Testing Museum, NATM, is a national science, history, and educational institution that tells the story of America's nuclear weapons testing program at the Nevada test site. The museum's focus is to preserve, consolidate, and make accessible to the public historical and archival records, films, photographs, testing and archeological artifacts associated with the Nevada test site. The museum offers public tours, educational programs, guest lectures, and book signings for the purpose of raising awareness of the Nevada test site and the nation's nuclear weapons testing program. Welcome to Dead Hand Radio, Joe. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Great. So I'd like to start the conversation and talk about the National Atomic Testing Museum. That's uh, the place where I first met you. And uh, it's an amazing place. I really enjoyed my time there. I had been there. That was my second time or third time that I'd been there. But it had been years, probably decades since I was last there. When was the National Atomic Testing Museum established? Well, first, I want to thank you again for visiting us, and I'm glad you had a great time. Yeah, so the National Atomic Testing Museum was founded in 2005, and the really the focal point of the museum and um, the Nevada Tesla Historical Foundation, um, which is our, our parent organization, uh, really focus on preserving and, and fostering public accessibility to the history associated with the test site, and the nation's nuclear weapons program. And so that's really our goal is to, to really help educate the public on the Nevada test site and nuclear testing history in general. So that is why we exist. Excellent. And how long have you been with the museum? And what is your role? So I'm the director of education. And this is actually my second uh, stint with the museum. I was originally here from 2013 to 2016 as a director of education. And I came back last September, uh, back in the same role. Um, I just couldn't stay away. I just wanted to come back and, and, and help really promote this discussion about nuclear testing history and uh, the present and the future. That's excellent. What originally uh, got you interested in the nuclear testing program um, uh, overall? So honestly, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of information about, you know, beyond just what I learned in school and, and did research on my own. Um, I really kind of fell into it. I was an intern with the museum in 2013 over the summer and um, it just it's sort of a happenstance situation. And I had a great time. I was fascinated by the, the history, by all the science, all the information that we talk about and it just sort of an opening came available and they brought me aboard and you know the rest they say is history so it's it's been a wonderful experience so as an intern were you studying um in college anything to do with the the nuclear industry 
So my background's actually um, history, mainly public history. Uh, I have my master's degree from um, University of Louisiana at Lafayette and um, my bachelor in history, well, in art from the Ohio Northern University. Um, so yeah, my master's from ULL and my bachelor's from, from ONU. And so really, like I said, focusing on public history, museum studies, wanting to one day work in, in a museum. And so we really didn't discuss nuclear testing or anything like that uh, in school. It was sort of a happy accident that it came aboard, but um, yeah, mainly American history and uh, public history is mainly what I studied. Cool. Uh, so as the director of education there, what uh, responsibilities do you have? So it's kind of, uh, with, with, as with most museums, you know, you have to wear many hats. So my main goal, uh, or my main, um, main focal points are, you know, organizing field trips, um, supervising our volunteers, um, creating content for social media, putting together the educational events, the distinguished lecture series that we have, um, outreach going out to the, the schools or going out to um, different conventions or conferences representing the museum in that way. Um, also going out and giving talks um, at, at different places. So it's, it's really a lot of little, uh, a lot of different things that, that I do. It's kind of a, a catch-all, so to speak, in, in terms of the position, but it's great. It never, never the same uh, never the same days. That's for sure. Everything's a little different. Always something exciting to look forward to. Great, and you get to you get to talk about one of the most fascinating topics ever, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's you know, every time, anytime you talk about it, whether it's talking about the the, the interesting parts of the history in terms of um, kind of the strange tales from the test site and things like that, or just talking about the Manhattan Project, or what the test site's doing today, you know, you always have people just hanging on every word. It's just, everybody is just fascinated by this topic. That is for sure. Yeah, it, it seems that way. It's something that sure has captivated me since I was a little kid. Now, what got you? Out of curiosity, I, I know you're interviewing me, but uh, out of curiosity, what got you interested in, in, in the nuclear weapons history and the just Cold War in general? Uh, well, it's um, that my interest has uh, been almost a like a lifelong uh, interest in the uh, nuclear weapons uh, area of of this whole topic, and it I guess it started as a fear when I was uh, probably seven or eight years old because um, this would have been like early seventies. And right in the midst of the height of the Cold War and the ever-present threat of nuclear war with Soviet Union, you know, being so young and being aware of that, it really made an impact on me. So growing up over the years, I've always had an interest in uh, movies like Planet of the Apes, um, you know, a lot of science fiction movies that had anything to do with uh, nuclear weapons or, um, you know, war on a massive scale, world wars. Uh, 
So I went into the Air Force and yeah, I did a lot of studying off duty about the uh, about the nuclear weapons and I, I just always have had that that interest. So recently when I started my podcast, I felt like it was something that I could easily talk about. Well, first, thank you for your service. And, um, and it's just, it's interesting to hear where people's love and interest comes from. It's, you know, for me, what I do, it's, it's, it's always fascinating because you have people from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds from around the world coming and all wanting to know more about it. And so it's just, I always have to ask the question because it's, it, it gives me a little bit of insight into, you know, you know, what motivated you to start the podcast is good to hear. Definitely. Definitely. I appreciate you asking. Um, so the, um, going, getting back to the museum, just a couple more questions. Uh, what are some of the major attractions that visitors can experience when they come to the museum? Well, unquestionably the most popular part about the, the experience visiting the museum is, is really the ground zero theater. That is a, a, we have this theater that's made to look like a bunker and you have these benches inside and they are just made to look like the benches out at News Knob. Um, now News Knob was out of the Nevada test site, which is now the Nevada National Security Site. And it's where VIPs, whether that's members of uh, the press like Walter Cronkite or um, high-ranking military officers. Uh, you also had politicians who could be invited to come out to the site and sit on these benches and witness an atomic blast going off, or atomic bomb going off, I should say. And so it's the museum has a recreated spot right in the middle and of, of the, the tour. So you sit there and it's going to simulate what it would be like to actually watch one of those blasts out there. So you'd be about seven to nine miles away, typically watching one of these in person. And you'd be wearing these dark goggles. You couldn't see anything in front of your face. And, and you'd be requ required to sit down. And so what they would see is this initial flash. And you could see it through the goggles because what you're witnessing is brighter and hotter than the sun. So this is, you know, everybody's accidentally looked at the sun before and got that, um, you know, loss of vision for a little bit. And it's, it's like that, but magnified. Um, it could cause temporary blindness for a few hours, um, depending on how long you look at it, it could be longer. And so the initial flash happens, right? And then you start to see the, the um the wave of dirt and debris coming at you just rushing towards you and and that's when you hear the boom of course light travels faster than sound and so it takes you a little bit to hear it but when you do you're also getting hit with all this dirt and debris from the blast and then it eventually will come back from behind and do the same thing because everything is getting sucked up into the mushroom cloud so it's, a, it's creating a vacuum. Everything's getting sucked up in there and dispersed. And so that's what you can actually experience in our Ground Zero Theater. The seats shake, air is getting blown at you, and it's recreating that experience. And 
we always have families, everyone different ages, all going away, having a memorable, uh, having a memorable time because of that. And it really sells how powerful these are. Uh, we had a gentleman uh, we talked to who was invited to watch one of these tests. And he said that he agreed to wear the goggles, but he didn't want to sit down. He had, you know, was on the bus coming out to the site and didn't want to be sitting down. And they said, that's fine. Um, just warned him about the blast and that shockwave. And so he was looking and saw the flash and all of that. But when the shockwave came uh, at him, he got knocked right under his butt because, um, because of just the sheer force. Uh, and that's seven to nine miles away. So it really gives you an understanding of just how massive and powerful these weapons are. Yeah, I appreciate that description uh, of, the, uh, of the experience of witnessing a, a nuclear blast. And uh, I have to say, I did sit through the presentation at the Ground Zero Theater, and it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. It's nothing like it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really unique. Um, Absolutely. I enjoyed it. But uh, your description of witnessing a nuclear blast or a nuclear test is amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's, it's one of the things that I really am so glad that we have because one of the concerns uh, of the museum, uh, of the foundation, and just my, my personal concern is, you know, getting into generations and, and my generation, you know, I'm a, I'm an, an elder millennial, so to speak, is born in, um, in the late eighties. And so I haven't witnessed an atomic bomb going off. And so the biggest concern is, you know, we're, we're in this, you know, eventually leaders are going to in office are going to be from the, our generation who have never seen a bomb go off um, and or atomic bomb go off. And you need to understand what comes with that and understand the the destructive power um you know always hear the the line of you know um you know if if you don't learn from the past you're doomed to repeat it and it's one of the biggest concerns is are we going to make the same mistakes are we going to have a nuclear war that they feared about in the cold war and so having this i feel like in some ways helps our audience better understand what an atomic bomb can really do. And, and throughout the museum, we try to sell that to them in terms of what, what is, what is the capability of these weapons? Um, because we don't want to see them used. A lot of the test site workers that we've talked to and, and they've said that most of the people out of the site didn't want to see these weapons be used. It was a nuclear deterrent um, to avoid going to war. And a lot of them, felt that they were doing their part to keep us out of a, a hot war with uh with uh Soviet Union now Russia and you know I feel like we're kind of continuing that showing people that this is something that we have to still talk about you know we can't forget about the power of these weapons absolutely that's a um it seems like that's a a, a primary role for the museum itself Absolutely. It's, it's partially, you know, reminding everyone about, you know, what work was done at the site, also why the weapons shouldn't be used, but also to the honor the individuals who worked out at the site who um, gave a lot of themselves to, to ensure that we did stay out of a hot war. So we really try to honor 
the people who worked at the site um, because it was a lot of long hours, blood, sweat, and tears that they put into it. So um, we always try to show our appreciation. Yeah, living in the middle of the desert in a small town, uh, was it Mercury where they lived? So, um, yeah, there was a little town of Mercury that was on the site. That's where even today when you go on uh, public tours or private tours, the bus goes to Mercury. Um, it's where they would have the cafeteria and uh, dormitories and all of those things. Um, and it really depended on the person if they would stay at Mercury, if they would commute from Vegas. It's about 65 miles northwest of Las Vegas. So some would drive um, along the highway to get there. Some would stay there. It really depended on, um, one, what was going on at the site at the time. Are they prepping for a big test the next day? Maybe they need to stay over. Um, or if maybe they're a bachelor and, and didn't have, you know, really any family in the area. So maybe they just stayed there uh, at Mercury. So it's oftentimes it really just depended. Uh, we do have a lot of people that we've talked to who, who just commuted every day. I usually carpooled um, and went to the site. So. And I'm sorry, I jumped forward a little bit, um, but uh, I'd like to get back to the museum for a minute. Yeah, uh, are there any other, um, are there any other features or uh, attractions that visitors can experience when they go in there that are, that stand out? I mean, there's a ton of information in there, which is, it'll take you hours if you, if you walk through there and try to consume all of that in one, you know, in one pass. Well, that's for sure. And, and I know um, individuals like yourself, we, we talk to a lot of people and they come in, of course, greeting them to the museum. And one of the questions is how long, you know, is it going to take me to go through? And we always say it really depends on your interest level. And for someone like you, I'm sure you were probably here for a few hours because of the content there. Um, but I think some of the, the standouts uh, for me, just things that, your, your general um, general public would be interested in is, you know, we have a piece of the Berlin Wall, uh, which we're one of only two places in Las Vegas that has it on display. And, um, and so it's very much prominent towards the end of the museum when we talk about the end of the Cold War um, and then into what's being done today at that site. And we also have um, one of the I-beams from uh, uh, one of the World Trade Center towers um, after the September 11th terrorist attacks. And um, the reason we have that, because we, we do get people who are, who are surprised to see it. And it's because following um, the terrorist attacks, um, there was a um, first responder training um, that was expanded upon. And they actually have um, terrorist uh, response training, uh, radiological uh, training, out at the Nevada National Security Site to help first responders have the best tools to respond uh, to a possible attack. And so um, that's why we have that to kind of, to introduce that topic. It's something that, um, in fact, they used to come to the museum prior to their week long training, um, but they have a, um, they have an entire area out there where uh, they take them through this rigorous training using uh, Geiger counters and so that if they need to find uh, radioactive objects um, or you need to, to locate something like that, it's, it's a great training that they get. And that's first responders from around the country. We get people from New York and 
um, you know, the Midwest and all that. So it's, it's a pretty cool um, part of the security portion of what they do out there. And so that's why we have the I-beam. Um, and so it's, it's really special to see people from all, like I mentioned earlier, all backgrounds. Um, everybody treats it with a lot of respect and um, you get this solemn feeling as you see people go through, uh, go by it. And it's, it's one of the highlights for sure. Um, just really selling that, that mission that the site has of security and keeping people safe, um, constant reminder for us. And um, some of the other stuff that uh, stand out, we always get a lot of people interested in the pop culture exhibit that we have, which really highlights the, um, the 1950s period where atomic was really synonymous with cool. And so we, we have a lot of objects like a, um, a yearbook from Las Vegas High School. Uh, we have fireball candies, which you can actually buy in our gift shop. Um, we have books that they did, like um, they have um, little Christmas ornaments with an atomic symbol on it, a uh, little atom on it. Uh, atomic toy guns and um, there's a um, a little a lab kit that kids could have played with when they were they were growing up and so a lot of the pop culture exhibit really is a fun one for people of all ages you know people who grew up in the era remember them and the kids just find it so so crazy a lot of the stuff that they were you know it's something that people don't expect to see when they come here and so they always get a kick out of it um, some temporary stuff that we have right now, um, we have an art exhibit, which features the art of um, Arthur Beaumont and um, Charles Bittinger, who were both naval artists um, with the U.S. Navy, and they were um, present for Operation Crossroads, which was a 90, 1946 series of tests done out in the Pacific Ocean near the Marshall Islands near Burkini Atoll and all that. So um, they, were com they were commissioned by the, the Navy. Um, Beaumont actually became the, um, the naval artist of the US Navy. And um, they were actually painted these images they were seeing of the, of the uh, Baker and Abel shots happening. So we have, have those on the walls, short descriptions on each of the uh, paintings. Um, and so it's really an art component to what we talk about. Um, and that also really helps people really get, you know, um, what these weapons can do. So it's, it's a pretty cool portion of it. Um, like I said, it's temporary, but we've had it for a few months and we hope to have it for a few months more. Um, so it's worth checking out. These haven't been on display together, I think, since 19, late 1940s. Every one of those attractions that you just mentioned were outstanding, and there were so many more. I, I guess it would be hard to pick which ha handful of of attractions in the museum were, were really stand out because I you didn't even mention some of the devices that are in there, and I'm not going to give away too much. People should just go see it. All the science, there's a ton of science um, from atomic um you know the from the beginnings of the atomic era to the geology of what's going on out there at the test site i didn't even know uh when you mentioned um the uh the the new responsibilities and um 
the new mission of the test site. Uh, what is it called again? So it's um, officially the Nevada National Security Site. Right. Yeah, I didn't even know that. I thought it was still called the test site. So they have a new mission um, and they're still continuing on with um, their, their cont contribution to the security of our, of our country, which is great to hear. Absolutely. And that's, I think that's one of the, the biggest misconceptions um, when we get visitors to the museum is that um, just like when I was in school, I didn't even know about the testing that happened after um, the Manhattan Project. We really didn't learn about it. And I think so, you know, in my mind, prior to coming here, you know, it, you know, it stopped after the Manhattan Project. But and so we do get a lot of people who come and think that once the, the test site stopped testing nuclear weapons, that it sort of just ended. But yeah, they continue to focus on, excuse me, focus on security and um, helping protect the country. So it's, yeah, it's, it's still going and um, still has a lot of great uh, work that they're doing out there. That's great. And it's, it's hard to, to separate the role of the museum and the test site itself because they're so inter integral uh, with one another. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, last question about the museum itself, aside from coming to the, uh, to the museum and geeking out over all the cool stuff you guys have in there. How, how could somebody, if they wanted to, how could somebody get involved with volunteering or, you know, doing something to contribute to the cause of the museum? We, I appreciate, I really appreciate you asking that question. You know, we're always looking for volunteers. Uh, absolutely. And um, they could reach out to me. It's uh, Joe, J O E dot Kent, K E N T at NATM hyphen nv as in nevada.org so joe.kent at natm hyphen nv.org and i'll go straight straight to me and i'll um you know respond to them and, and we'll have a discussion about how they can volunteer and, and what kind of options we have uh, we always can use help whether it's through research um giving tours or um helping out with events and and in the store so we're always looking for volunteers. Cool. Uh, so we'll we'll travel back in history a little bit to the beginning of the of this whole atomic era, and talk a little bit about the Manhattan Project and the first atomic bombs. June 1942 marks the beginning of the Manhattan Project. Prior to that, a very important correspondence took place that led to the development of that program. What was the role Albert Einstein had in development of the pro project? A lot of, let me let me rephrase that a little bit. Um, a lot of people think or consider Albert Einstein the father of the atomic bomb, and that's totally not true. Um, but he did have a role in the development of that program. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, you you hit the nail right on the head. It's um we get a lot of people coming to the museum. Like I said, there's misconceptions with the atomic bomb and especially Manhattan Project. And yeah, Einstein's role in the, the actual project was quite minimal. Um, and it often surprises the people that come through the doors. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, he did play an important role and um, that was in helping uh, inform the US government, uh, government about the need for such a program. And that was in 1939. Um, there were a lot of scientists around the world, including Einstein, 
uh, who were concerned about the discovery of fission. Uh, that was done by German scientists uh, Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann. And uh, the scientists feared that Nazi Germany would use uranium being mined by the Belgians uh, to, to, to develop a fission bomb. And so Einstein met with fellow physicists, uh, Leo Szilard, Eugene Wigner, and Edward Teller to draft a letter warning President Roosevelt about the possible threat posed by the Germans. So uh, Szilard wrote the letter, Einstein edited, signed, and forwarded it to the president. And it, they really, um, they really um, turned to Einstein because of his notoriety. You know, even back in 39, people knew who Einstein was. You know, he was a, a rock star of science, right? So people knew who he was. And so that helped these scientists, you know, really get the attention of Roosevelt. Now, it still was another few years until the, the Manhattan Project was started, but this really um, brought it to the attention of the president. Right. And the, uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of, I, I think it was a pretty sobering letter for uh, FDR to receive. And he did respond to, to Einstein. And uh, from my recollection, he said that, yeah, we're going to do something about it. Thanks for l letting us know. Basically, that that kind of summarizes it. But then, um, then they did move forward with the program, kept it highly secret, and there was multiple sites. It wasn't just one site in Alamogordo, like a lot of people think. There was multiple sites. Yeah, absolutely. There were the three primary sites, but you, you had you know factories all over the country involved. Um, you know, they um, they did experiment under the um, University of Chicago under the, uh, the um, Stegg Field, um, which is when they first um, first were able to have the nuclear chain reaction. Um, so, you know, that's an example. Um, you have Hanford um, in Washington. Uh, they produced the plutonium that was used in the Trinity test and also um, used for um, to build Fat Man. You have Oak Ridge in Washington, or I'm sorry, Hanford in Washington and Oak Ridge in Tennessee. Um, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, they had the Y-12 plant, which was used to make enriched uranium. So um, those are just some of the, the big sites. But you also, of course, had Los Alamos Laboratory, now the Los Alamos National Laboratory, who was, was really where the science was, all the calculations were taking place, the development of the bombs themselves. So it was a massive undertaking for the United States. And um, it was Roosevelt, of course, who authorized uh, the Office of Scientific Research and Development uh, and the Army Corps of Engineers to establish the Manhattan Engineer District and, of course, to form the Manhattan Project. And so, um, and what's I think most amazing is that after it was revealed what the Manhattan Project was up to and, and what was being done, it shocked the American people. They had no clue. And, and I think nobody expected it to, to something of that magnitude to be kept secret for that long. So um, you had a lot of people where it was very much compartmentalized. And even the name Manhattan Project was, was created to make it, people think, oh, it was, it was just something for the war that was being done. You know, there's programs all over the country um, you know, getting factories to produce um, tanks and, and all of the other, you know, 
needs for the the war effort and so you know the term manhattan engineer district manhattan project all of those things and while of course um there were things going in manhattan in terms of you know office space and things like that the the name itself was purposely kept vague to keep people thinking it was just something for the war and not nuclear you know developing a nuclear bomb is alamogordo associated with the manhattan project or is it los alamos labs so it's los alamos labs um and alamogordo was where the trinity test took place yeah so um the alamogordo bombing and gunner range is about i want to say it's like 230 miles from where the lab was and um and then that was uh, the the bombing or the bombing and gun range was about 218 miles away from Santa Fe, so um, you're talking about just just in New Mexico. There's a lot of land being covered just from that. So, and uh, do you have any idea how many people worked on the program? Yeah, absolutely. Um, at its height, there were about 130,000 workers um, across the different complexes, um, and of course, like we mentioned, there's factories plants, uh, scientists, uh, engineers, all of that. So 130,000 workers across the country. Um, and by the end of it, the um, government actually spent about, I think it was over 2 billion. Uh, and you're talking about, you know, 1945. So, um, you know, you could imagine how much that would be in today's economy. Uh, do you want to talk about the goal of the program or should we just skip forward and talk about the test? No, we can definitely talk about the goal of the program. Um, as we were talking about earlier with um, you know, the concern of the scientists, you know, sending the letter signed by Einstein, um, the big concern was Nazi Germany getting a hold of the fission bomb. And the, really the main goal of the Manhattan Project was to develop a nuclear weapon before Nazi Germany could get their hands on it. And so... Um, that was what all the resources were being pulled for. And, um, you know, obviously they were able to, uh, to successfully test it, um, used it twice during wartime. And, um, and this is something that was straight out of science fiction. Um, it also, I, I was talking about earlier about how initially the atomic bomb was popular. And, and that was partially because it was just, it was something that people couldn't even fathom. And it was, it was just an interesting, the science behind it was fascinating. Um, the whole process, the fact that everything was kept so secret, you know, of course it just interested, you know, everybody was interested in it. So um, that was part of the reason for that early popularity. Um, but yeah, so the, the main goal was to de develop that weapon. And you, you touched on the, the idea that this was straight out of science fiction and it actually was I think it did have roots in science fiction because there were uh, writers that were writing about atomic weapons before they even had uh, had developed these destructive weapons. You're absolutely right, and it's and I'm glad you brought that up. It's it's true. It's it was actually out of science fiction. Really amazing thing to look back at that and and realize how how influential, uh, influential those, those authors were on what we're doing in, with our technology today, going to Mars, 
you know, landing on the moon, these sorts of things that seemed like they were out of, uh, seemed like they were never going to be possible. And um, the fact that they actually came to pass, it's just amazing. Yeah. July 16, 1945 is a significant day in history. It was the day of the world's first atomic explosion. And we're coming up on the 75th anniversary of that date. What was the name of the device? Yep, you're absolutely right. So um, the name of the test was Trinity. So it's oftentimes considered the Trinity test, but the actual device that was used um, and detonated was called Gadget. And so that's actually the, the term of the device that was exploded. And um, we have an upcoming exhibit. I know we're talking about that later, but we actually have a model of what Gadget looked like. That's um, so cool. Yeah, it's just this ball with wires and everything else. So it's uh, it's something else when you look at it compared to what would come later. Um, you know, you, as you know, visiting the museum, these weapons get smaller and smaller and more powerful. And so going from something like that, which just is a massive ball with all these wires and cables on it, um, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing to see it. Yes. Yeah, so uh, a massive ball. Like you said, with wires hanging off, it didn't even resemble a bomb. No. Suspended from a, a metal tower in the middle of the desert. And, uh, you know, that did, did the scientists even know what was going to happen when they lit that thing? So they, they had the calculations um, from the mathematicians in terms of, um, you know, how hot it would be and how... Um, you know, the, the brightness and things like that. But in terms of the actual yield, nobody really could predict it. Uh, you had several mathematicians working on trying to figure out how powerful is this thing going to be. Um, and they even actually had a uh, bet going on. Um, they were all throwing in numbers that they thought would be, and, and they weren't really, none of them were really close. So, um, but yeah, the calculations, they were able to determine a lot about it, but really not about the power. And that's really what why they tested it to begin with is they needed to understand what are we looking at with the explosive power of this weapon um and so the yield ended up being in about twenty one thousand uh kilotons which is, or 21 kilotons i'm sorry which is equivalent we always uh, compare it to um tons of tnt um so 21 kilotons would be equivalent of twenty one thousand tons of tnt um, so just a massive, massively powerful weapon. And, um, and you really compare us to the bomb, uh, that was uh, dropped on Nagasaki. Uh, they were about the same. They were both the, they were both, um, similar in terms of their design. And they were also very similar in, um, the yield of the bomb. Uh, so, and even the, uh, I read a, a letter from one of the scientists to one of the generals uh, before they did, uh, before they carried out that, that mission, and they still didn't know what the yield was going to be at that point. Yeah, it's, it's surprising, right? You would, you would imagine that they had at least some, you know, some base level. Um, but yeah, it was just a, a, you know, they were just like, well, we have to test it to find out. And, and so that's what they did. And, um, and like I mentioned earlier, um, that was about, um, 
Alamogordo bombing gun range is about 230 miles from Los Alamos. And, um, and so you can actually visit, I believe, twice a year. You can visit the Trinity site. Um, it's only open a couple times a year. Yeah. Uh, is it true that there's melted sand uh, that looks like glass out there? So uh, there's what's called trinitite. And trinitite is, uh, just like you're talking about, it's, it's sand that basically um, is superheated and becomes trinitite. And it's, I'm glad you brought it up. It's another thing you can buy in our uh, gift shop. So trinitite is, um, you know, it's all from the Trinity site, all from the test. And it's actually available for purchase. Uh, it's totally safe and, and you know, it's, it's nothing to be concerned about. I know we get a lot of questions about radiation, but it's completely safe. Um, and it's, uh, it's, you know, there's only so much Trinitite. So it's a pretty cool little uh, souvenir to have when you leave. Yeah, for sure. Is that the only way to create Trinitite by having a nuclear explosion? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, the only way it's, um, and that's, you know, truly why it's called trinitite and it's because it was something that was so unique to an atomic bomb um just the sheer temperature you know like the the thermal energy being released from that bomb um is super hooted to to the fact that it becomes its own unique substance so i collected a couple of statistics from um my study on this in preparation for the interview and uh one of the things that surprised me was that the blast was four times hotter than the sun. Now, how did they measure that? So I'm not quite sure on the, you know, what, how they actually came up with the calculations. I know that was from the mathematicians. Uh, they, through their formulas, they were able to calculate that. Um, but yeah, it was definitely hotter than the sun. And, and you can well, imagine. Let's, let's just call it magic. They, yeah, they right. did magic. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly feels like it. Absolutely. Yeah, right. um, and it really, um, it, it really also makes you think with these early bombs, you know, um, they would go on to build and test bigger ones in terms of the yield, in terms of how far they could be seen and um, really what, um, what effects it could have. So um, the fact that, you know, what you're talking about with four times hotter than the sun, just imagine these, these later, uh, much bigger uh, nuclear tests. Right. That, I mean, later bombs would be in the, measured in the megatons, which is, mm -hmm. uh, isn't that a million tons? It'd be a, yep. Um, so whenever we say, because um, there's the, the largest we, um, the United States ever tested out in the Pacific, um, there was about, the largest was 15 megatons. So 15 million tons of TNT equivalent um i there's a quote that we have uh on one of our panels in the museum which says that it um it he was just looking at, at watching this go on and say it, it it makes these earlier tests look like they were firecrackers in comparison and um it, it really it was something that it was a different level compared to what came before yeah yeah because the destructive force doesn't doesn't increase incrementally it increases exponentially at that point mm -hmm. so back to the trinity test they 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 call it trinity and a lot of people think that the, the the bomb itself was named trinity but that's actually the test site now we talked about the destructive uh capabilities of that particular explosion the trinity test 
And there was a quite famous quote by Robert Oppenheimer after that event. Can you tell me what that is? So yeah, uh, the quote you're talking about is, um, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, which was um, from Hindu scripture. Um, and it's interesting, um, you know, through our research, you know, it's Oppenheimer said that at, during his re recollections, um, you know, talk, re reflecting on it. And um, his brother actually said that during uh, while they were watching, because his brother Frank was a physicist, um, they were standing by each other when it was being tested, um, and he uh, recalls his brother. He calls Oppie, uh, saying it worked. But in his reflections, he did say, "Now I am become death, uh, destroyer of worlds." Um, just being reminded of that scripture, uh, just the devastating power of the weapon itself. And I've heard that recording of him saying that, and he sounded quite distressed. Mm -hmm. when he made that comment yeah it's it's one of those he he's certainly of a, a lot of the scientists you know um he looked back on it um and you know speaking about the journey coming out uh, the genie coming out of the bottle and um yeah i mean he did uh, later in life absolutely have some you know have some uh, I, I don't know if you would call it regret but certainly had some some concerns about what occurred after that initial test. Well, that, that's a great segue to the next part of this. August 1945, two more, two more atomic bombs were detonated, this time on civilian populations, and um, resulted in mass, massive casualties. But also it resulted in the surrender of the Japanese army, which effectively ended the war in the Pacific. These two cities were designated as industrial military targets, despite being heavily populated with civilians. Do you know what the total casualty number of casualties was? So it's with with the um, the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's it's really hard to to pinpoint numbers because it, it depends on what you're looking at. So what we say. Um, we look at the death toll in terms of the initial attack. So from the, from the initial blast itself, and we're looking at about 250,000 between the two of them. Um, and of course you, you have to account for uh, resulting deaths from um, radiological health effects and, and all of that. So um, you're looking at, you know, later throughout the decades, um, the people um, sadly dying from those different diseases and things like that, that and just um, whether it be the burns or uh, cancer or things like that, it's, um, you know, those are all, all part of it. Um, but when we talk about the attack itself, we talk about those initial, uh, the initial death toll from that first attack. And so uh, we look at it about 250,000. Okay. Fortunately, those were the only two times that this, these weapons were used against humans. Unfortunately, it did result in massive casualties. Um, do you know why they they chose to to detonate two bombs and not just one? Absolutely. And um, one thing I would like to to point out too, and of course, you know, you you never want to see 
any loss of life at all. Um, and, and while we talk about the, the, the health effects, you know, of the Japanese people following the attacks and um, throughout the decades, um, part of the reason they decided to drop these two weapons is um, Truman and his advisors viewed it as a, as a better alternative to a invasion of Japan, which would have been codenamed Operation Downfall. They had planned to invade uh, the main island in Japan, um, and their estimated death tolls would be, um, or was uh, 1 million, upwards of 1 million American deaths and uh, 3 million Japanese deaths. And, and that's because um, multiple times um, the Japanese government had said that they would fight to the last man. And there was a concern that, and they already started pulling back troops um, prior to uh, the planned invasion. So they knew that they were starting to hun hunker down in, you know, on mainland Japan. So um, that would have been the alternative. And Truman had to make the decision of, do we want to lose a million, upwards of a million American lives and have an a even more drawn out war? Or do we want to use this weapon to minimize the casualty rate and quickly end the war. So obviously not a desirable position to be in, um, especially since Truman knew about the weapon for about six months prior to making that call. Um, he, three months into his term as vice president, he, you know, after uh, the day after Roosevelt uh, passed away is when he learned about the Manhattan Project. And then three months later, was told, okay, we have to, you know, we have to decide if we're going to use this or not. So we had three months being aware of the actual Manhattan Project to make that decision. So um, not an easy one at all. Um, so in terms of why they dropped two bombs, um, the first bomb was uh, dropped in Japan on August 6th, um, 1945. And um, three days later, on August 9th, they dropped the bomb on Nagasaki. And so they actually had three bombs built to use. Um, they had hoped after the first one that Japanese would surrender. And after three days, the Japanese didn't surrender. So they opted to uh, drop the second weapon on Nagasaki. And that resulted in, of course, Japanese surrender of World War II. Um, but they had a third weapon, um, but the Japanese surrender came before that was deployed. So um, they waited, were hoping for um, a response, a surrender, um, but when they didn't get that, um, and they gave warning um, about the second attack, and when they didn't hear anything from the Japanese, they, they struck uh, Nagasaki. That's a good explanation. Uh... I wasn't aware that the, the Japanese were offered an opportunity to surrender between the two uh, attacks. I, I believe they were, they were warned before the first, um, let them know that we have a, a powerful weapon that we're going to use. Um, and, and that's obviously paraphrasing and dropped the first bomb, gave them an opportunity. Uh, three days had passed and, and that's when they decided to use the second. 
One little piece of data that I came across that was interesting to me, and I think not a lot of people realize this, is that when when those bombs are dropped, they don't actually hit the ground. They're detonated one to 2,000 feet above the ground. And why why is that? So, yeah, absolutely. And um, a lot of the weapons, um, especially at, at the Nevada test site, um, would have been on towers uh, for the atmospheric or above ground tests. And the reason for that is that you maximize the blast radius. If you would hit the ground, it would only blast out from the, the top. But if you're detonating it above, it maximizes the damage caused by the blast. So um, you'd actually maximize what it could do um, when it's high up there like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense because you're basically effectively cutting your explosion in half by letting half of it go into the ground, right? Absolutely. And, you know, we were talking about the um, the release of radiation and the the health problems that a lot of the Japanese people would have had. Um, the, the goal of these atomic bombs were the blast damage and not necessarily the radiation. The radiation was a, was a secondary effect from the bomb in terms of what the goal was. The goal was always to destroy these, um, as you said, the, um, these, strategic, um, these strategic sites. So um, that, that goal was always the, that initial blast and the damage it caused. Right. Even though they were well aware of the effects of the radiation, they had no idea how long-term or actually what kind of problems that would create for people. Absolutely. A lot of, a lot of um, their knowledge of, in terms of the, the radiation and, and what, you know, long-term, like you're saying, health effects and all of that, um, they didn't really know. Um, you know, it's why we kept testing afterwards to, to learn more about these weapons, learn more about radiation, how to contain, how to um, mitigate a lot of that. And so um, this was a brand new, brand new frontier. So there was a lot that they really didn't know. Um, you know, there were a lot of different positions on what it was going to look like on the long term, short term. It was, it was something that they were learning as they were doing. Yeah. Uh, well, if there's a silver lining, I, I don't really see it as a silver lining, but they did do a lot of scientific uh, investigation on those effects after, as a result of this. And, and I don't know if that led into the use of radio, radi- radiation as a treatment to certain cancers um, or if it led to the use of x-rays as a as a way to diagnose medical conditions but it, it certainly gave them some good information that they could use in the medical industry well absolutely we um we were talking earlier uh, you and i about the um different things to see at the museum and uh, one of them it talks about Bren tower which is bear reactor experiment nevada um and it was a uh, basically a freestanding um, reactor that would release radiation 
and they use this tower is actually larger than Empire State Building and they used it um, to help um, get information for the, the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, determining radiation um, health effects, uh, learning, um, you know, how much um, radiation, um, you know, how much uh, a lot of radiation can you be exposed to in a, in a year, um, safety levels for workers, um, what, what doctors should look for, how they could treat uh, these individuals. So, um, and what the experiment did is with that, that reactor, it released radiation onto this mock Japanese village. And it determined how much radiation was able to penetrate the buildings themselves. So if a person was indoors at the time of the attack, they were exposed to this much. If they were outside, they were exposed to this much. And like I said, able to determine, um, you know, how much radiation causes A, B, and C, what kind of treatments um, that would help, uh, safety levels for the test site workers. And so that pro program um, was a huge, huge help in, in giving, giving more information uh, for um, all these organizations around the world that, um, you know, that assisted with the recovery, as well as the Japanese government and physicians and, and that sort of thing. So, um, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's hard to say there's a silver lining to something like this. It's, you know, it's no question that it was catastrophic and, and, and all the loss of life is, is heartbreaking and it's unfortunate. The Japanese surrender effectively ended the world war, which at that time, um, the war in Europe was finished up winding down and, um, they were already starting reparations in, in Germany and the other countries that were affected by that. Uh, there was already, I mean, even though that war, that war ended, there was already mistrust and suspicion growing between the Soviet Union and their Western counterparts. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that? So what I can definitely say is, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, especially once the war ended, you know, there are ideological differences between the Soviet Union and the United States at the time. And so um, while they were unified against a common enemy, uh, once that common enemy was defeated, you know, they, they did have a lot of mistrust and, and they did uh, look at each other as, as enemies. And um, I think that really came to a head in, in 1949 when the, the Soviet Union uh, tested their first nuclear weapon. And, 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 and there's always going to be people that, that view the start date of the Cold War um, as, as different years or, you know, they might not necessarily agree on the start of it. Um, I always look at it as 1949 because that is when their first nuclear test took place. And, and that's when everything changed is, you know, the, a year later, uh, Truman established um, or approved the establishment of a continental test site in, um, in Nevada and um, recognizing the need for a, a site on mainland U.S. where they could test year-round. And um, because there were definitely 
there were definitely um, concerns about testing in the Pacific after uh, the, the Soviets tested their first atomic bomb. Um, you had uh, the Korean War started. You had, of course, the Soviet Union now had the bomb. Uh, there was concern being out in the Pacific, as we talked about earlier. Um, you know, we alluded to it with the, uh, the art exhibit that we have. But in 1946, you know, a year after the end of um, World War II, we uh, tested um, Operation Crossroads. Uh, Abel and Baker were the two shots that were, that were detonated. Um, and that was in the Marshall Islands out in the Pacific Ocean. And um, that was really the first uh, designated proving ground or testing site of the U.S. And um, that's where they ended up testing the, their largest above ground or atmospheric tests. But once uh, the Korean War started, once um, you know, um, the Soviet Union started uh, testing their nuclear weapons, um, it already added more concerns on top of what they already had. It was expensive to take a lot of that equipment out to the Pacific Ocean. Um, it was uh, humid, um, you know, not very accessible. You had to fly everything out. And so, um, or, you know, by boat. So you're dealing with a lot of spending uh, just to test in the Pacific. So with the security concerns, the financial concerns, they felt it was necessary to have a continental testing site. And so that's when Truman actually approved it. Um, there were a couple finalists for that site. Uh, in addition to um, the Las Vegas bombing and gun range, which uh, part of it became the Nevada test site, um, they also had uh, the Dugway Proving Ground out in Utah, uh, White Sands Proving Ground in Mexico, and uh, and lastly, and the one that surprises people the most was uh, Camp Lejeune out in North Carolina. So while um, in the um, the um, Nevada test site, you would have, you'd make sure that it, um, it would go away from Las Vegas out in Camp Lejeune. Uh, the plan would have been to have it go out to the Atlantic. And even, but it was too populated. Yeah. Even with all the safeguards, once that continental test site was established, they still had, un, uh, they were still not uh, able to predict where that fallout would go. And it did in cases irradiate several towns in Utah as uh, far as I know. You know, one of the, the one people uh, know best is uh, St. George. And um, we recently talked to people who, who knew of uh, friends and family where they grew up there um, and, you know, watching the tests occur and going outside and witnessing it. But, um, but knowing family members and friends who, who sadly got sick and, um, and yeah, and, and that's, you're talking about in an area that was far less populated than out in North Carolina. So uh, you could imagine that was one of the big factors why they didn't choose North Carolina. Um, ultimately, um, um, Las Vegas bombing gun range um, was selected due to, um, due to its uh, desirable climate. Uh, at the time, Las Vegas had only about 25,000 people. Uh, so that area of the state was pretty sparsely populated. Um, it also um, ended up being um, advantageous in terms of location to the um, 
the the uh, laboratories. So Sandia, Los Alamos, uh, Lawrence Livermore, you're looking at New Mexico and California. So um, Nevada being right there uh, and the site right there, it, it actually made a lot of sense because it they could take that in there a lot for a lot less than it would take to move it out to move everything out to the Pacific. Um, just a couple of points of data. Uh, the Nevada test site was established in 1951 and it was host to 100, 100 above ground and 828 underground nuclear tests between the years of 1951 and 1992. It looks like a lunar landscape. There's so many, it looks like it, it was hit by meteors. It's, there's so many craters in that area. Absolutely, and, and you, your numbers are correct. Um, yeah, 100 above ground, 828 underground. Um, the site itself grew from 680 square miles uh, initially to about 1,375 square miles today. So it's actually slightly larger than the state of our island. So it's, it's, so it's a massive, massive site and um, definitely the biggest of the, the testing grounds for these weapons. And, um, and it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, that it looks like uh, the moon because they actually hosted um, some of the Apollo astronauts from the different Apollo um, training uh, for the different training missions. And they actually came to the site and uh, used the rover and um, did some of their, their training on how to and what to expect when they got to the moon because of all the craters, uh, which are all from underground testing. So that would have been, I believe, the 70s, I think, is when those um, from the different Apollo missions. Wow. Interesting. So how heavily irradiated is that whole area? So I don't have the numbers in front of me now, but um, they do have um, public tours out at the site. Um, so um, obviously right now uh, that's been halted, um, but you can sign up for public tours out to the, the site and they take you around to the different craters, uh, into the different tunnels, um, all the different areas. Obviously not a lot of the stuff that they they do now, which is still um, secret, but they do take you the areas that they can. Um, so it's it's not dangerous levels. Um, you know, a lot of it is alpha level radiation, which uh, as long as you're not uh, ingesting it, um, it, is not going to be dangerous. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the number of above ground tests so obviously the the radiation levels decline over time i've always thought that you know if if there was a nuclear war the earth would be irradiated forever and i i think that might be misconception yeah absolutely i think you know it's the radiation will eventually get you know, there'll be radiation, but it will eventually get to the, to the levels where it's safe. Um, and even if it's not, it, you'll be able to take the precautions. Um, one of the big things is when a, an atomic bomb is, is detonated, um, it releases um, gamma radiation, which is going to be intense. It's going to be able to, um, you know, to be able to penetrate the skin and, and all of that. But it's um, but it doesn't last as long as say alpha or beta does. And with alpha radiation, which lasts the longest, 
Um, it's only ever really dangerous if you ingest it. So if you see people with masks and things like that, that's the only way they're really going to be affected by that alpha is if they're, if they're drinking it or breathing it in or whatever. Um, so um, that gamma radiation is going to be the initial very intense radiation released, but it's also not going to last as long. Um, so with, with, we always talked about the, the different precautions for radiation, which is time, distance, and shielding. The longer you're exposed, the more it's going to affect you. Um, the further you get away from it, the, the safer you'll be. Um, and then lots to how you're protecting yourself. And so with alpha, how you can protect yourself is it's just your skin or piece of paper, mask. Uh, then you get to beta and you're talking aluminum, aluminum foil. And then you get into x-rays, which of course you have the lead being um, the big protective barrier there. So at the uh, dentists, the, I give the leaded vinyl um, to cover you with that to help protect. And, and then when you get into gamma, you're looking at concrete and, and that kind of protection. That's why you see a lot of um, bunkers being built of concrete that's going to protect you from that very intense radiation. And um, they found um, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki that buildings made of concrete were not only did they, you know, able to protect from the radiation, but they also withstood the blast better. Um, and so they started looking at that in the test in um, Operation Crossroads that I was mentioning. Uh, they actually had a concrete um, repair dock that they tested to see what would happen, and it survived both tests. Um, so concrete is what protects the best from gamma radiation. The, the, the uh, concrete that is able to withstand the blast and absorb or re resist the penetration of the gamma radiation, will that concrete absorb that gamma radiation and store it? I, I know it at least um, block the radiation, but I don't know if it necessarily absorbs or stores it. So yeah, that's, that's great information. A lot of people that I uh, communicate with on Twitter, um, they're kind of like me. They're into the science fiction uh, part of it, the, the post-apocalyptic movies and, and literature that have been written based on nuclear wars and stuff like that. They will find that segment of this podcast fascinating. The project, I just wanted to like throw this out there for people. The selection process of determining that uh, Nevada would be the test site for the continental U.S. Uh, was given a specific name. What was that? Nutmeg, which is always uh, whenever you talk to people about it in the when we talk to them in the museum, it's always something that you know they laugh. They're like, "It's Project Nutmeg," um, and you know they. The, the, some of the names are um, amusing that they used um, for some of the tests. Once they stopped using the Abel Baker and all of that, you would have a series of tests named after types of cheeses or different tools, um, you know, things like that. So um, it, it's always interesting. We actually have a panel that talks about that lists all the different names of the tests. And so, yeah, you'll have, you'll have all different, types of tests all following a, a pattern of the series and they'll just pick a random top uh, category and then name the test individual um, 
you know, individual um, things falling in that category. I think one of the cheese ones was Jarlsberg, I think was one of them, things like that. So uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting part of it. The reality is they chose Nevada and that's where they did a lot of this testing. It was instrumental in the fight against Soviet expansionism, which they did have a real agenda to take over the world or at least move communism into as many corners of the world as they possibly could. And the Nevada test site was had a had a key role to play in fending off those uh, those threats by the Soviet Union. Absolutely, and um, you know, I, I was listening to some of your podcasts the other day. And I know you talked about MAD, mutually assured destruction. Um, one of the questions we get a lot of um, from from people coming to the the museum, and um, and we get people um, might surprise your listeners to know that. Some people that come visit the museum are absolutely against the bomb, and, and some people are, you know, felt that we did what was necessary. And having grown up in during the Cold War, felt that you know it, it kept us out of a hot war. But uh, we're open to to have those conversations with people. Um, you know, our staff and our foundation members. We all come from different from different you know backgrounds and different views on it. Um, and so we're always open to have those conversations. But one thing that uh, we get a lot of questions about is why did we keep testing? And, and the, the best way to say that is because once, once we tested it in, you know, then, then used it in wartime, you know, um, and then after, especially after the Soviet Union tested their first bomb is that we understood that if we got behind it all, in the technology and the science and of how to build these weapons that uh, we could be left um, unprotected and be left susceptible to a possible attack by the Soviet Union. Um, and of course, other countries um, ended up um, testing weapons themselves. The United Kingdom, of course, uh, France, uh, China uh, came later, uh, places like India and Pakistan uh, tested their own nuclear weapons. Um, some in the in the 90s after the U.S. stopped testing. So, um, but yeah, mutually assured destruction played a big role in in the amount of tests being done at the Nevada test site. Um, each series, you would um, you could have ten, sometimes ten or more detonations, and that's because for the labs who are actually developing these nuclear weapons they have to test more than once in order to understand, you know, is this a fluke? Is this, you know, how are we going to see if a, a device or a, I'm sorry, a, a design is effective and they had to test multiple times. So oftentimes, you know, each design of a new weapon and there were plenty would have to be tested at least 10 times. And, um, and a lot of that was if, if, like I said, if, if we stopped testing and if we lagged behind at all in, in the, the technology, the science of, of nuclear weapons, you know, that would give our, you know, our enemies, so to speak, um, the Soviets, their advantage to attack. Um, I mean, your, your podcast name alludes to the concern on both sides about a possible attack, right? So this idea of like, we need to make sure that we're on the cutting edge be, and that's what kept us out of war. Um, both sides recognized it. Um, you know, there was a distrust that, you know, you could have said, oh, we'll stop testing, you know, and if they kept going, then that puts us in a, a unique and difficult position. Uh, and, and likewise for them. So, um, 
you had that mutually assured destruction absolutely where in order to to keep neck and neck and assure that one side won't attack the other we had to keep testing um because what like i said comes down to mistrust in a lot of ways and that eventually um changed uh, especially when you get to the 80s um you start having um more open discussions between the two countries uh, leading to an actual joint test. I don't know if you get a chance to, to see that when you were here, but um, in 1988, there was a joint verification experiment that was done um, between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit because I know we're going to go back to underground testing. Um, but the two countries worked together on, on this test called Kearsarge the United States representatives of the testing program going to uh, their testing site and um, representatives of their testing site coming to the test site in Nevada and working on this project together. And that was because they wanted to, one, assure that we were all following the limited test ban treaty, which is what moved testing underground, but also um, as a way to kind of ease tensions and um, as an act of, as a goodwill to, to each other. And it really started, you know, it, the two countries started getting, started to see eye to eye a bit in terms of um, the need to stop testing. Yeah, there was, uh, there's a lot of points I'd like to make in, in response to your, uh, to what you just said. Um, but I'm, I'm going to take it back to the distrust era between the Soviets and the U.S. and why the U.S. continued testing. Uh, because you made some good points, and I want to just, uh, I just want to expound on that. The Soviets developed the world's largest nuclear weapon called the Tsar Bomba. Mm -hmm. And are you familiar with that? Yes, it was 50 megatons, which uh, I mentioned earlier, ours was 15 megatons. Uh, theirs was uh, 50. So it was, um, it was, I believe, uh, the United States looked at it as, you know, we don't want to, to outdo that. And, um, and that's really the culmination, a lot of the concerns worldwide, um, you know, from, from all sorts of different groups, where, you know, there was a concern about, fallout in the atmosphere about the tests becoming more bigger and bigger and 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 putting people at risk and that was really when it came to really uh, it came to you know a boiling point in terms of this is getting out of hand in a lot of people's minds and uh yeah so 50 megatons is massive as we talked about that that the destructive power doesn't increase incrementally it increased exponentially so what what were you going to say about the the explosion? Oh, I was going to say it. Um, I believe, um, based on what I've researched, is that it burned a hole temporarily into the ozone layer. Yes, um, uh, so that's what was, I read also. Yeah. So it, it's that you know I, I think if anything sells just how powerful this weapon was, it would be that um, the fact that it it was such a the, the heat and the blast power of it uh, were off the scale, and. From what I read, that wasn't the the Soviets didn't plan to stop at that point. They had one that was in development for a hundred megatons. They decided not to go forward with it once they saw what the fifty megaton did. 
Well, yeah, I think I think everybody was looking at it as you know we do want to make sure that the the pilots and the you know that are that are dropping these weapons for testing um, can get away. Um, you know, we talk about how uh, when these blasts initially um, are, um, you know, or when these bombs are initially um, detonated, you're talking about milliseconds that everything is occurring. So, in order to get away, you know, it's the bigger the bomb, the faster everything unfolds. And so, you know, you want to make sure that 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 pilot, whoever can get away uh, from the blast itself. So, I think a lot of people thought, you know, we we got the gist <laughs> in terms yeah. of the the power. So. Well, and who knows what would have happened if they had detonated a hundred megaton? That you know, there there was speculation at some point that it could ignite the atmosphere, turn the turn the world into a a ball of flame. Um, yeah, that's just that's just way beyond reason to go that big. And I think it even it shows you like just how amazing it was that both sides ended up actually being able to be at the same table and work on a test together because, you know, that level of, of testing, you know, it's, you're talking about like, like I said, a whole different level than what is being tested um, previously. So um, the fact that they were able to put aside the differences and come to the table and, and work on tests and, and come to some agreement is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And now testing is, non-existent except in rogue states like North Korea. Um, possibly, well, Iran supposedly doesn't have the bomb yet, but once they do, they're going to want to test it. And um, for, for the um, for your listeners who are interested on our website, um, our executive director has written um, a lot about um, what's been going on in the news with North Korea. And so um, there are several articles by him talking about um, what's been happening and also talking about it from, a, um, from his, you know, our perspective as a, a nuclear testing museum. So um, that's definitely worth checking out because it, it takes what we know have learned from the past and, and putting it uh, and using it as to an, analyze what the uh, North Koreans are doing. Is that Michael Hall? Yes. Yeah. I met him as well. I met him the day I met you. So the uh, we'll talk a little bit about the underground testing because that was there was actually more way more underground tests conducted mm -hmm. than than what the above ground testing consisted of. When did they actually move the testing underground? So the nuclear test, um, I'm sorry, the uh, limited test ban treaty was um, put into effect in um, in 1963. So that's when they decided to move all testing underground, and and that was signed by United Kingdom, United States, uh, the Soviet Union, um, and the goal of that was to prevent um, more um, more radiation from being released. Um, there was concern about the fallout. We talked about um, Saint George and, and areas like that, and um, you know they really wanted to make a concerted effort. Um, because there was concerns about strontium-90 uh, and all of the, the other, other health effects from the release of this radiation. And so um, 
it was a joint decision to move testing underground. Um, and like I mentioned, that was 1963. And that came after, um, as we were talking about, where there was a, a temporary uh, treaty um, that ended in 1962. So, um, um, so that's what led to underground testing as a whole. Okay. Now, did they have to build a bunch of tunnels under there? Or I mean, I saw some some uh, mock-ups of excavating equipment. It looked like it looked like they had massive amounts of tunnels underground for that uh, to conduct those tests. Is how how massive is that facility underground? So yeah, um, so the 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 main types of underground tests are the weapons effects tests, which were done in um, shafts uh, dug vertically. And then you also had the, the tunnel tests, which were horizontal tests. Um, oh, I'm sorry, the, the vertical tests were just uh, weapons tests. Um, and so those were the vertical ones uh, done in those shafts. And then the horizontal tests done in the tunnels were the weapons effects tests. So the vertical tests were to determine the, um, the power, um, the yield, um, to get all of the diagnostics from the, and record all the information from the blast itself. And the horizontal tests were to see the effects of the blast and radiation on uh, military hardware. So those are the different kinds. So we, we look at it as a vertical uh, weapons development test and then the horizontal weapons effects tests. Uh, you would have more of the um, of the vertical um, weapons development tests. Um, so the and those would typically be um, you're looking at um, anywhere from the the bomb would be anywhere from 800 to 2200 feet underground. Um, so it took a lot of uh, changes to the testing process in order to to really convert to underground testing uh you had massive cranes and um drilling rigs and and all of that so um you have th this creation of these diagnostic testing racks which are just massive um we have one in the museum that you saw that was that went to the ceiling and that was just a fraction of what they actually were in terms of the size and so they would they would have to be moved by cranes and at the very bottom is where the atomic weapon would be. And so coming off of that rack, this metal rack would be all these wires and cables. So as they load it into the, the vertical hole, uh, all those wires and cables would go off to where the scientific equipment would be. And they had milliseconds in order to capture all this data until everything got vaporized. And, and turn into and created a cavity underground. So the, we, we talked a little bit about the yield and how, you know, they went way big and decided to, to not go that big anymore. Were the, were the yields starting to, uh, starting to decrease over time or did they still try to go as big as they could and just try to refine the, the uh, explosiveness of it? So yes, um, underground, um, especially with um, with you know the concerns about you know you don't want to release any any radiation um, from these tests. Um, they were much smaller in comparison to the atmospheric or above ground tests. So um, 
and then and also Nevada test site in and as a whole was um they detonated a lot um less in terms of yield as to the pacific testing so um they didn't oftentimes reach anywhere close to what was done in the pacific so and then when they moved underground it went you know even smaller um and we did have some large ones out there but uh nothing compared to the pacific but yeah they were really conscious about uh not wanting to release any radiation um and um and they also learned too from um, moving underground that they actually got better data from it so um they were expecting it to um, not give as good of results but because everything is contained uh, they were actually able to get more information from it so uh, they were able also to test more often because everything's underground and they're all um everything's protected so you don't have to worry so much about um, weather patterns and, and things like that they of course had to take things into account um, but um, they were able to test more frequently so when you look into the 70s in terms of the amount of testing going on it's actually they're testing quite a bit I, I saw a presentation in the uh, in the museum it, it seemed to me like they collected enough data that they no longer even need to do physical testing they could do testing digitally now if they needed to. And that's one of the things that the test site does. Um, absolutely. So we were talking about how security is, is um, something that they're very focused on out there. And, and one of that is stockpiled stewardship. And this idea of making sure our stockpile of weapons are able to be maintained without having to test these nuclear weapons are able to test components of the weapon to make sure that they're, um, that they're able to operate. And then you also have um, where they can have subcritical experiments, which is able to test the, the like you said, able to test the, using all the, the um, what they know about testing through the technology that we have, through the science that we understand, um, they can actually determine through subcritical experiments, they can, they can do the small scale experiments and then they can multiply that based on how it would be in real life on a different scale. So, um, yeah, they absolutely still do all of that stuff today, um, but just in a different way. The mission continues in a different capacity, but it still continues out there. Um, one other thing that I wanted to mention, I, I didn't put this in my notes, but um, the, the test site was also a, had a key role in developing the um, propulsion engines for spacecraft. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they were um, working on developing uh, through the NERVA um, program. They were developing um, and started in the 60s, um, but they wanted to see if you could create a nuclear um, nuclear propulsion system. And so it went through different iterations, but um, the science behind it was, was you know, it, it would create a much more, um, you could get further uh, much more power behind it. Um, unfortunately, um, the combination of public um, public concerns and um, um, the funds were going away as well. Um, and you also had um, the fact that we eventually got to the moon without it. So um, it sort of got uh, shelved. But um, they knew that you could actually, they discovered that you could use um, nuclear power to propel 
a rocket ship into space. Uh, what they would typically, what the plan would have been is that they would launch out into space with your, your, your standard um, propulsion system. But when you got into space, you'd be able to use that nuclear powered um, engine to then go even further. So the idea of going to moon and Mars. And so yeah, the Nerva rocket engine or the Nerva rocket program, um, we actually have a, uh, one of our distinguished lecture series that we do, we have a, um, one of them is about that on our YouTube channel that you can uh, check out, uh, talks about the program itself. And it's a fascinating dive into um, this really something that we don't talk a lot about, but it's something that you might actually see a lot of the companies that are pushing to space and you know um, going beyond moon and mars uh, you might actually see them start implementing something like this because the science behind it was was um was sound it was just a matter of can we do we have the the right materials for it um do we have the the need for it so uh, you could always see it come back it's a possibility uh, i do want to share a story just recently um Somebody that I barely even know, uh, who is a distant cousin of mine, informed me that his father used to work out there at the test site. His name was Andrew Wyman, and he worked for General Atomic. Uh, you familiar with that company? Yes. So he, was, he worked at the test site for General Atomic, and he worked on designing the high-speed instrumentation necessary to measure the short-lived particles from the underground nuclear tests. Uh, and apparently there, he wrote some, some notes before he passed away, which was only two years ago. And I would have loved to have talked to him about that, but uh, I'm looking forward to digging into those notes to, to see what he had written down about his experiences out there. And yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. And, and make sure to uh, let us know what you come up with because we're always looking for, you know, we very much uh, like to keep a record of different um, different people who have worked on this stuff and try to have little histories and things like that. So we're always looking for donations and information about people who who worked on this because it's we really want to keep their memory alive as well. Definitely. Absolutely. Uh, so we talked about how significant the Nevada test site was to the efforts of the cold war. Um, and in the early, well, late eighties, early nineties, there's, there's a lot of dispute as to when the cold war actually ended, but I have some key dates that, um, that I'd like to mention right here that were leading up to the end of the cold war actually officially being over. Uh, November 1989, the Berlin Wall comes down. You guys mentioned, or you mentioned that you guys have a, a good chunk of that wall, which is awesome. Um, that was awesome to see. And it's right there at the end, and you don't even realize it. I, it's probably a spoiler that we gave that out <laughs> and said that's in there. We definitely definitely don't want anybody to miss it, that's for sure. Yes, for sure. Because it is kind of tucked away as you're, as you're exiting, and if you don't look at look for it, you could miss it. Then in December of 91 is when the USSR officially collapses. They were, they were going through 
financial turmoil. Their economy was in a shambles. They were going through political turmoil. There was a coup attempted against Gorbachev at that time. He managed to retain power, but his power was significantly reduced. And the USSR was in, in its death throes at that point. October 2nd, 1992, there was a, 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 the final moratorium on nuclear testing went into effect. And that leads us up to today because there has been no, uh, no sanctioned nuclear tests uh, since that date. Yes. Um, in, in terms of what um, the United States, we haven't tested a nuclear weapon uh, above ground, underground, anything like that since uh, that moratorium was passed. And I believe Russia has, um, has honored that agreement as well. Uh, now, if you got a couple more minutes, I'd like to talk about the SALT uh, agreement because that's coming up. For, is that what it's called, SALT? The uh, strategic, uh, let me double check the, uh, the actual acronyms. We get a lot of acronyms. Uh, <laughs> let me see. Um, one thing I did want to mention while we were talking about it is it was 1958 that there was a limited uh, moratorium on testing. Um, and that was, um, that's was, was broken um, prior to the limited test ban treaty. And that's what started up uh, testing it again. So there was a, a short moratorium of testing that started in 58 to the early 60s and then like i said the soviet union broke that and then we started testing as well and that led into the 1963 limited test ban treaty and in terms of salt the strategic arms limitation talks that's what i was trying to think of yes that's the one yeah that is due to expire this year or the beginning of 2020 sometime i mean 2021 and uh there's really no confirmation as to what's going to happen after that expires. What, uh, what are your thoughts on that? So um, I know uh, personally, you know, I hope, um, you know, it'll be continued. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the things that we've talked about throughout this podcast uh, episode where, you know, wanting to make sure that um, they're not used, that uh, the amount that we have is curtailed, um, make sure that, uh, the, the countries that have these weapons, um, you know, are, um, are limiting their numbers. Um, so I hope that's something that, that they'll continue. Um, and, but it's, you know, it's, you never know the, the world is a, an interesting place sometimes, but, um, from on a personal standpoint, you know, I would, I would hope that it would be continued and that, um, one, we don't see, nuclear testing testing happen again i know that's been a that's been a discussion that people have been having about um should we start up testing again and um i doubt it will happen but uh you hope that they continue to um to curtail nuclear weapons to continue to not test nuclear weapons um as we did in the from 50 you know 1945 to you know 1992 but um, but you never know, and and that's what I think makes our museum so important is that that we talk about that story, we talk about the um, what we've learned, um, and why we shouldn't use these weapons, and um, 
we help, I think, flesh out a lot of these news stories that people hear, whether it's, are we going to start testing weapons again? Uh, are we going to, nuclear weapons again? Are we going to, um, are we going to, you know, you know, we're going to stop, you know, being involved in curtailing nuclear weapons. And, you know, we're important because we can give a lot of historical context to that. And because, you know, we find a huge uh, boost to our attendance whenever there's, there's uh, North Korean news or you hear about nuclear reactors or you know, like Fukushima, we get a lot of uptick in our attendance because you mentioned this at the beginning of the, the episode, there's, you know, your interest in this started from fear and um and there's there's fear i i think you know with when it comes to these nuclear weapons no question so we're able to really really add some some background to that and and hopefully take away some of that fear and um and just inform and my personal belief is i i think think we'll continue curtailing and we won't go into another arms race. At least that's my hope. The, the problem is if it does expire, then it's, it's open season on testing again. My question is why would, why would either the Soviet or the, the Russia now, but why would the, why would Russia or the U S begin testing again? If that was the case. So um, I think it's, it's no surprise to people that over the last you know, few years, the relationship between the two countries has, has definitely you know, worsened and the tensions have increased. And I think, once again, going back to the Cold War and how these are all connected, you have that distrust again. You have that fear from both sides about what might they do. And that knee-jerk reaction is to say, then we're going to have a deterrent. And hopefully what we'll see is that we'll recognize, they'll recognize this and they'll realize that the best way to, the best way to um, move forward is to agree to limit what our armament is and what our stockpile is. Um, but I think what it comes down to is that with our, the worsening relationship, you just, you have a lot of fear, a lot of animosity and and that's when you start wondering are they living up to their end uh are they going to try to do this are they going to try to do that and that's what leads to the arms race yeah yeah and that that is where the problem lies you we talked about this with mad um throughout this conversation which has been incredible is that you know it, it's it's all about that distrust is what what creates the need for this um, or I shouldn't say the need, the, the reaction that we take. And um, I think if we focus on improving relationship between our countries, that um, it's only going to lead us into a better situation where we hopefully never have to test nuclear weapons again. And we hopefully don't want to increase our stockpile um, because I don't believe that it serves either country further testing of any kind is not uh is not productive in any way it's not going forward it's going backwards and that's not the direction we want to go so um it's been a great conversation joe and i, I want to respect your time we've, we've been at this for quite a while and uh so what i'd like to do now is close it out with your final thoughts 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, definitely want to respect your time too. And um, I've had a wonderful time talking with you and it's flown by, that's for sure. Um, the time has just flown by. But um, with our conversations about Russia and the United States and what the future holds, um, what it comes down to is, you know, this quote from, from Einstein when he said, the splitting of the atom changed everything except the way we think. You know, no matter how advanced we become, is that fear. And that's really what motivated nuclear testing um, and what brings up this discussion uh, now about the, the future of salt. So, um, but what I wanted, what I want to say is that I hope everybody will um, take the time to check out a website, uh, nationalatomictestingmuseum.org, um, plan their visit to come check us out. Uh, I'd love to, to meet with any of them uh, if they come to the museum. Uh, we have a, uh, shortened hours right now. Uh, we're open uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday um, from uh, 10 to 3. Uh, normally, we're open uh, seven days a week, um, 10, to, um, 10 to 5. And then uh, Sunday, we were 12 to 5. Um, so right now, we've, we've changed our hours. But um, hopefully, people will plan their visit. Come check us out. We've been taking precautions. Uh, our staff wear masks and gloves. And we wipe down all the surfaces uh, with, um, and we disinfect. So um, we've been taking those precautions. Um, but I do want to thank you so much for having me. Um, I want to share that we do have um, an upcoming exhibit about Trinity. I know we've been discussing that a lot today. And we will also be focusing on what we talked about with the experience of um, those in Japan um, who, um, who experienced the attack on Hiroshima Nagasaki. Uh, we are working with the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum to have a um, testimonial uh, from one of the survivors. Um, we're not quite sure which, um, which, lo which location um, they experienced it at, but they actually experienced um, one of the um, atomic bombs um, that was dropped on Japan. Um, and they're gonna share what they, what they felt with you know what they saw um, their experience and we want to highlight that side of it um, we've done one similar um, similar to that a few several years ago at this point um, highlighting it um, and so like I said working with the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum to have a testimony of one of the survivors um, the last time we did it you could I could hear a pin drop so um, we take that we take it seriously that we want to share all sides of the story. Um, the reason for dropping it, but also understanding that there were, there were, there were horrors that the Japanese people experienced. Excellent uh, closing statement about Einstein and what he said, such a profound statement and so accurate and, and quite prescient too. I mean, I, I think that uh, he foresaw more than, than uh, he was given credit for. I think the guy was brilliant and he, he gave so much to the world. We're, we're eternally grateful for that. Uh, yeah. And as far as your work and the work out at the Nevada test site, um, extremely important, crucial that the mission continues and um, what the museum does. I, 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 I'm amazed that uh, the, the upcoming events that you guys have, the, the um, the 75th anniversary of the Trinity shot 
or the Trinity test um, and the 75th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's something that we take, um, we take seriously that, that role that we have to, to show both sides of it and to understand that something can be beneficial to one country, but also detrimental to another. And that um, nuclear weapons, like anything, you know, if, if in the right hands um, can, can be useful, it can be a deterrent to war. We saw it with the Cold War. Um, but at the same time, though, it can be used uh, to destroy. And I think um, whether you're on one side or the other, it's important to understand that no one wants to see these bombs being used. So we need to make sure that we're giving a voice to those people who, who've seen firsthand what it can do. So we do have um, some upcoming events. Um, we have Richard Rhodes, who is a renowned author, going to be talking about uh, Oppenheimer um, and about the, um, the mystery and the myth of that individual. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about him today. And so he, his lecture, uh, which is on July 16th, um, is gonna be talking about Oppenheimer. Um, and he's a renowned author. Um, he's, uh, you know, a winner of a Pulitzer Prize for making of the atomic bomb, which is one of the most, you know, most referenced uh, story uh, books about the Manhattan Project. So he's, he's definitely someone we're excited to have. Uh, and that's going to be via Zoom. And so we have all that information on our website. Uh, we're also going to have um, uh, Dr. Uh, Brett Park, who is with the uh, Nevada National Security site. So, um, yeah, so uh, the title for uh, Richard Rhodes is uh, Robert Oppenheimer, The Myth and the Mystery. And that's going to be Thursday, July 16th um, at 6 p.m. live on Zoom. And the information is on our website for that, how to register. And we also, on July 30th, um, which is also a Thursday, we're going to have another Zoom uh, talk with Dr. Brent Park. It's more going to be conversational. Um, he is the Deputy Administrator for the Defense Nuclear Nonproliferation at the National Nuclear Security Administration, the NNSA, uh, which oversees the uh, Nevada National Security Site. And so um, when we're talking about stockpiled stewardship earlier, he's the guy who oversees that. And so, uh, or well, the, the Deputy Administrator for that. So um, he can talk a lot about um, areas of stockpiled stewardship, um, discussions about um, you know, the work that's being done to make sure that we're not taken um, off guard and we have, uh, we have our stockpile ready to go. And then of course, I, I mentioned that we do have uh, the Trinity exhibit opening on July 16th, along with our Richard Rhodes lecture. And then on um, August 6th, I believe, is when we're having um, the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum talk about the, um, survivor testimonial. Um, and so it's going to be $5 to check it out. And um, the Brent Park one, uh, Dr. Park, is going to be free. Um, but the Richard Rhodes and um, the testimonial and, and all of those, those are going to be $5. Um, but that gets you in to be able to, to check out. And you can ask questions and chat. And we could um, make sure to, to get him to answer any of those questions. And the uh, the... Um, exhibition for the Trinity test is is on site, right? Yep, it's going to be in our um, theater, 
um, that we have when you first enter the museum, uh, that's not going to be any additional uh, extra cost. So um, a museum admission will get you into that exhibit. And um, it talks about all the different sites, like we're talking about Oak Ridge, Hanford, Los Alamos, um, the reason for um, the Manhattan Project being created, um, then all throughout the, the science, technology, um, all the moving pieces that were involved. And with that, I don't have anything else for you, Joe. If, uh, if you have nothing else, I think we can call it a, call it a day. You know, absolutely. And thank you for uh, taking so much time out of your day. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. I mean, appreciate your time. And, and uh, oh, hey, if you're up, up for it, maybe again in the future, we can do it again. I'm always happy to, to make time. And thank you for making time to, to have me again. Thanks again, Joe. I'll talk to you appreciate soon. It. Take care. Talk soon. Bye. Dead Hand Radio is a podcast about the Cold War, its history, and the effects it had on our culture, technology, and the future of our world. My goal is to examine these and other topics and guide listeners and guests of the show on a journey of mind-expanding contemplation to learn, to educate, to entertain, and exchange ideas with those interested. So join me, and together we'll explore a fascinating period of history and examine some incredible advancements in weapons, technology, science, art, and culture, and discuss how all of it relates to the future of our world. If you or someone you know has knowledge about the Cold War or any other topics we discuss on this program, please get in touch and let's talk. It could be a great conversation for a future episode, and I'm especially interested to talk with anyone who has first-hand knowledge of these topics. If you have questions or comments, drop me an email or visit deadhandradio.com. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Dead Hand Radio is part of the SIP Network, a group of high-energy, positive-minded individuals providing a resource for listeners with a variety of podcasts, from entertainment and education to motivation and inspiration for your daily routine. Visit sipnet.us and learn more about these excellent podcasts. I'm Andrew Hall, and this is Dead Hand Radio. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.